All right. Hey, guys. How's it going? Welcome Hello. to Evolutionary Medicine. Um, you guys know me. I am Kate, but I am also joined by two additional lovely people here today. Um, you guys know Dr. Joe, hopefully by now. Um, but we also have another special guest tonight, Dr. Coffee Brown. So Coffee Brown, uh, also an emergency medicine physician, but I teach full-time now at University of New Mexico. Oh, okay. What do you teach? I teach in the EMS section. I teach mm. all the assessment, management, and pathophysiology. And oh, what, what does cool. EMS stand for? Uh, emergency Medical Services. There you go. AKA paramedics. Badasses. Right. Badasses. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very cool. And Dr. Joe? Emergency physician here at the University of New Mexico. And I also teach, but not full-time. Part-time. Yes. Well, somebody's <laughs> got to take care of the patients. <laughs> here and there, yeah. You haven't taught in a while, have you? I like to think that I teach every day. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I like that. Sure. I learn from it, yeah. so there's yeah. that. I no, like there's... to think that I learn every day. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I teach actually in the ER. So I worked yesterday, right. I worked the day before yesterday. And we have trainees every single time that I'm in the ED, and that's why I work where sure. I work. Yeah. So there's some teaching involved in that. It is a teaching hospital. And it really right. does go both ways. I, really, I learn something every shift sure. that I work. Yeah, yeah. That cliche of I learn more from my students than I teach them <laughs> is kind of true. It's kind of true. In some ways, yeah. yeah. That's For one of sure. the fun things about working in an academic center. Yeah, Not absolutely. that you can't learn things in a non-academic right. ER. Yes, sure. Um, so, so for those of you who have not been here or who have who are in need of a bit of a refresher for what this stream is, uh, we typically will talk about some sort of clinical research, perhaps topical, or perhaps we have an actual article that we're going to go through, all through an evolutionary perspective. So uh, for today, we will be talking about the placebo effect, probably something that every single one of us has experienced one way or another throughout our lives. All so. Right. My doctor diagnosed me with severe hypochondria, and I asked him if there was something I could take for it. Yeah, there you go. Perfect right. example. <laughs> Prescribed Obacal. <laughs> I feel like that's a, uh, a physician joke. That, Placebo that I spelled backwards. Okay. Oh, ah, right. there okay, there nice. we go. There we go. I'm glad you asked. Yes. <laughs> and I will say, so this topic, it, it does benefit from uh, another podcast. Yes. Uh, called Only Human. It's from WNYC, and it's Real Doctors Fake Medicine. It was published in 2016. <clears throat> okay. And it kind of covers some of the same Let's ground. See if I can get a minus link the evolutionary part. So for those of you that want to go and check that podcast out, I listened to it again today, and it, it really is excellent. So I'm actually interested. I'm certainly interested in placebo. I'm interested mm -hmm. in evolutionary medicine. But the connection between the two doesn't jump right out at me. So, mm. well, we're going to we're going to explore that. that. I think yes. that we'll, we'll get into it. And I, I don't have super crystallized, you know, ideas that are well developed. So that's something that we'll do today. Yeah. But I mean, look, we evolved, as did all life on this planet, and this is a real phenomenon. It seems to be part of humanity. Right. That we can encounter this thing that we call the placebo effect. We'll get into that. And so it evolved like everything else. So that just seems to me that it needs to have some kind of evolutionary exploration. And I don't think that anybody has done that yet. Do we know whether, well, actually, I would say we do have some uh, information, but do we know whether animals benefit from placebo? In other words, if it evolved at all, did it evolve after oh. we became human? Right. Is it, is it something that's conserved over? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our evolutionary lineage. I don't no. know, but you can get homeopathy for your dog. That's true. Or you can do. We've also talked about yeah. probiotics for your dog. But that, that's real. Yeah. <laughs> well, probiotics, I think of as physiologic. Um, yeah. Placebo is not fake; mm -hmm. it's real. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But and it's it is no, physiologic, it is but it depends heavily on the understanding of the participants. Now, if placebo medicine works on dogs, if I do get homeopathy homeopathic medicine for my dog, and he and it actually helps him. Mm -hmm. Presumably, it's because my confidence in the medicine right. is influencing my dog. And that can make perfect sense to me. That wouldn't be an astonishing yeah. thing to me. But one of us has to believe it works. And I don't right. think my dog understands it's the reasoning be behind the homeopathy. Yeah. And that really raises the He can the barely read of, the label. Yeah. Who, who are we treating when we take our dogs right. to 
to get yeah. some. I mean, it, it, I feel medicine. like it could be argued that whatever sort of energy or vibes you're putting out towards your dog of, of, of your expectation that, mm -hmm. that the medicine might work could potentially have some sort of impact. I mean, we yeah. know a lot about how dogs feed off of our own vibes mm -hmm. already, so. But, uh, right. to, but to answer your question though, so there is an example uh, <coughs> that we'll get to, I think, that in which ants exhibit sickness behavior. Mm. They actually, quote unquote, pretend. If I was an ant, I'd fake a sick day once in a while too. Yeah, they do, <laughs> yeah. So ants can do this. Uh, as far as medicine taking goes, um, plenty of sick animals, everything from sheep, to gorillas, lots of examples in primates mm -hmm. and in agriculture in which they actually will seek out medicinal foods. Yes. So the, the, taking on the sick role is something that, that other species do. Mm -hmm. Now, among birds, for example, and other species, cheaters, so long as they don't exceed a certain percentage of the population, squirrels who steal each other's nuts, you know, things like that, um, are, are apparently part of the adaptability of the species. Right. In the case of ants, if they're actually exhibiting what we would term some version of what we would call psychosomatic behavior or factitious behavior, somehow a smattering of them either has to benefit the queen or at least not do any significant harm because the individual cheaters in an ant colony aren't reproducing. Well, I, yeah, mm. so I'm not sure exactly where you're going with the idea of cheating. Uh, so faking sick days. So faking sick days. Which when sure. I do it is completely 100% yeah. honest. Right. So, but for ants, yeah, you're right. This behavior has evolved. It presumably benefits the, the colony and benefits the genes that are shared by the queen and the ants. So we'll get to that because it's a really cool example. Sorry, run ahead. Yeah, or we could, or we could well, skip forward to it. for a minute and be the bad guy for yeah. a second. So we're talking we about, about homeopathy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I will tell you, there's people watching us right now mm -hmm. going, well, that's real. That is totally real. In fact, in Europe, it's a covered medical benefit. Mm. Right. Sorry, no patience for you. It is not real. In homeopathy, the more dilute the stuff is, the more potent it is, to the point that when a chemist can't find it in the fluid anymore, that's the good stuff. And no, there's no there's no scientific credibility to homeopathy. Sorry, I'm just drawing the line there. And so if that makes so, you mad, so write once, letters to Kate Rusk. That's yeah, Kate. Right? A <laughs> But so, just to clarify here, what what kinds of treatments are we talking about when we say homeopathy? Like, what falls into that? What what do you, what do we think the sort of common understanding of what? Homeopathy Fair enough. Means? When I say homeopathy, I mean treatments using a substance designed to reproduce the symptoms the patient is complaining of, but diluted to a near infinite degree. Interesting. So That's are right. you saying that it's that it is something that is deliberately continuing the symptoms? Yeah, the theory is the reason you have a fever, and by the way, this is one of our theories right. too, is that it's bad for the bug. It's worse for the bug yes, than it is right. for you. We have talked about this several mm -hmm. times. So if you have an infectious disease, we should promote fever, not block it. Right. They call uh, what we would call scientific medicine, a homeopath or other alternative medicine would call allopathic medicine, meaning we try to do something different than the symptom. We try to okay. oppose the symptom directly sure. rather than promote the symptom, which they would understand, and this makes sense from an evolutionary medicine standpoint, as part of the body's okay. healing process. So, home, so technically promoting a fever would potentially be an example of homeopathy. And it would actually so be one be. where we're kind of on the same page. There, the, the, the famous example of uh, treating neurosyphilis with malaria kind of falls into that category. It was actually a fever treatment that was used, this is the early part of the 1900s, and I want to say that the person that discovered this got a Nobel Prize, but oh. I'm sure people on, online can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, so that this is, was a, a fever therapy in do, giving people malaria who had syphilis to cure the syphilis. So it was, it was a syphilitic cure. Okay. And so it was treating like with like, kind of. They were actually yeah. using though something that has a physiological effect to right. tackle something mm -hmm. with a physiological effect. Mercury was also used to treat syphilis. Right. Mercury at least probably did kill some syphilis, although sure. it was pretty rough on the patient. Did the malaria have any positive effect? As far as I know it did. It actually did show some benefits. Now I'm not, you know, I haven't read the articles and see, I didn't know if they, they probably didn't do randomized, double-blinded, con placebo-controlled trials, but at least there was some 
there's a, a biological way that this could actually work. If the temperature goes up high enough, it could actually cause an immune response, mm -hmm. kill off mm -hmm. the syphilis, and produce a cure. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. But that's the idea. That's you know, if you go to a supermarket and you buy a homeopathic remedy for flu, a lot of the homeopathy remedies actually do contain measurable amounts of substances. So it's blurring the line between what the phenomenon that you described, where the more dilute it is, the more powerful it is, and that is traditional homeopathy. But a lot of homeopathy is just small amounts of stuff that may or may not have a biological effect. We're, and, and I'm sorry, did, were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to mention that we have a, a confirmation about mm -hmm. the 1927 Nobel Prize. Sweet. Well done. All right. Where, Thank you, for that. Uh, Thank homeopathy you Dan. Homeopathy sometimes. Thank you. Well, I won't say homeopathy, but alternative medicine in general, or actually all of us sometimes jump the, uh, jump the shark, is that, well, if I'm right about fever, I'm right about the rest of it too. So we should give you a runnier nose when you have a cold, and we should mm -hmm. give you a more severe headache when you have malaria, and we should give you <laughs> bigger sores if you have syphilis or something. You know, I mean, that one area of overlap exists doesn't mm -hmm. validate the right. whole you know, theory and all the constructs that spin out from it. And that mistake is a common one. So I just I want to throw out a counter argument right now, okay. which is that I agree that homeopathy doesn't have a rational biological mechanism by which it would work. But on the other hand, it is probably also true that if something contains nothing, and that, that is kind of by definition what tr traditional homeopathy is, at least that's how we you know, traditional right. allopathic doctors would describe it, mm -hmm. um, there may be some benefit to giving nothing. And there may be... It may and it's be, not the act of <laughs> not having anything, it's yeah. the act of giving something, yeah. but <clears throat> that is actually nothing. So we right? could say that a lot, let's just posit that a lot of the benefit that patients get from homeopathy comes from the placebo effect. Right. There's a doctor-patient relationship, we're giving something that both partners believe is going to work, and it does work. It does work for people. It really does. So then should we really be poo-pooing this and saying that people shouldn't do it when a lot of what we do, they come to the ER, they get a CAT scan, they get a you know, potentially dangerous dose of radiation to diagnose their non-existent abdominal pain, they mm -hmm. get a bunch of medications like opioids that they can get addicted to and can kill them. So what's, what's worse? Giving somebody something which may not have much in the way of a biological effect but has this placebo effect layered on top which is hugely beneficial or doing something where we're actually hurting people? Uh, that argument gets made a lot, yeah. and I would say that one of the places we jump the shark yeah. is we're Americans. If a little of anything is good, a lot is better, right? right. You can ruin it's any true. good idea by taking it too far. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I would say that evidence-based medicine is always trying to take things a little further. It never occurs to us that there is a point of diminishing returns. Right. I think you're right. And I think the idea that, yeah, if a little bit is good, then we should do more of it, that certainly is the characteristic yeah. of the American, American. healthcare system. <laughs> yeah. I imagine there's a bit of a kind of a balance here, too, where, mm -hmm. where there's certainly some level of diminishing returns at some point. There's also probably a baseline of things that may not benefit from the placebo effect. Maybe there are certain things that, that it might work for yeah. that other things will not. Well, you know, we do live in a, in a market economy and people advertise some of these, we'll call them alternative or complementary treatments. Right. And full disclosure, my wife does some of this. So. Oh God, see, are you in trouble when you okay. I'm, in, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and we have had knock down, drag, you know, drag out arguments about homeopathy. She doesn't do that, but she does do yoga and she does do acupuncture. And I've been the beneficiary of some of those treatments. Right. And I can tell you that they work. So, so maybe, maybe I'm biased. Can you indeed? They, they worked or can on me. you say that you felt better the, after the, she did the, the treatment? The end of one. Yeah. I mean, I think, so I'm, I'm wondering, we were talking mm. a little bit about this earlier. I'm mm -hmm. wondering what, it, what is it about yoga that is considered homeopathy or what, what, what conditions yoga is supposed to be beneficial for? So I think, again, not to put words in her mouth, but she would say <laughs> that it's not alternative and it's not homeopathy it's it's a complementary okay. treatment adjunct that you okay. can do that that has real physiologic effects and can potentially treat some conditions sure by engaging in yoga because i i have zero problem positing that yoga will 
maybe increase muscle mass or flexibility or perhaps increase the amount of space between your vertebrae or maybe. something like that. I don't know that I would necessarily say it's going to treat my eczema or whatever well, it el whatever else somebody might have. I think the primary benefit, and I'm not expert on this, and I wasn't prepared to talk about yoga sure. so much. But the <laughs> Sorry to put you on the, the spot. The primary benefit, besides being in good physical condition, which yoga practitioners are mm -hmm. if they do it a lot, uh, is that it tunes your autonomic nervous system. Oh. And it makes it so you decrease, decrease sympathetic tone and you increase the parasympathetic arm of the uh, autonomic nervous system. That's a claimed benefit that I find at least plausible. Sure. Yeah. You know. So uh, the blood pressure goes down. Right. Yoga, some yoga practitioners have very, very low heart rates. And this is a byproduct of that change in... Sure. Um, I mean, we have evidence that, that petting a dog for some amount of time will reduce your blood pressure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not totally... Uh, counterintuitive to think that an hour-long yoga session might also do the same. Right. Okay. So we got yoga. We got homeopathy. We got acupuncture. We have our. We've talked about opioids treatments. These all kind of play into um, the realm of yeah. you know how do we make people better uh, with with or without medical evidence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should um, kind of yes. plunge into. Let's move on to our our slides here. The, <laughs> the okay. main. Yes. Example of the placebo effect. Yes. And actually, I guess, and this is this first slide for a those of you tweet. at home. It's a yeah atrial fibrillation tweet, and it's it was posted by John John Mandrola Mandrola MD, and yes. so he shows a picture of a an EKG that shows atrial fibrillation, a, a, a um, irregular heartbeat, and this is something that people do have, and it causes problems. It's we relatively go to the doctor common, for right? it. It's reasonably common. And sometimes people will get shocked. They'll get a little uh, you know, cardioversion with electricity, or we'll get sometimes give medications that don't work as well. Or we do a little little surgery and actually ablate the area where the abnormal heart rhythm is coming from. What does from. that mean? <laughs> ablate yes. means to burn, really. In, in this, oh, okay. In this they use this electricity or, or cautery to burn it. Is this meant to open, close? Change morphology. The idea is that there's little little area of cells in the heart that are um, that are overactive. And ah, it, okay. You, know, you you may not know this, but virtually every muscle cell in your heart has the capacity to be a pacemaker. Interesting. You know that whole yeah. thing about somebody yelling fire in a crowded theater. Yes. It mm -hmm. would make things so much simpler if you shot them. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good example. <laughs> Thank you, coffee. <laughs> Made it much more clear. That would help. So yeah, yes. <laughs> the problem. Get rid ablation. of it. Ablation. That's ablation. <laughs> that was perfect. So this this guy is, shows a picture of the EKG. Clearly shows atrial fibrillation. This is after he's had this procedure, and the okay. patient says, "Doc, I feel great. I'm swimming. I'm walking. I have my life back." And then the doc looks at the EKG and says, "Oh my gosh!" And the the patient feels better because they got the procedure, but they're not actually better. They're still atrial they're still in atrial fibrillation. Yeah. Did not cure their condition. Now. I actually want to explore this just a bit, with like how, where you wanted to go with this. I've seen lots of people who have gotten ablation and are not any longer in atrial fibrillation. Mm. I'm not arguing and that it doesn't I have work. friends who are electrophysiologists, though I myself am not qualified in that area. Yeah. And I don't have the sense that there's any ambiguity, or at least mm -hmm. I suppose there's always some ambiguity, but I mean, that there are these accessory pathways or these accessory um, uh, autonomous muscle groups and that burning them out uh, really can, at certain stages in the development of the disease, stop the atrial fibrillation. So is what are we learning from this? In one particular case, it didn't stop it, but the patient still felt better. Right. And we think that's because the electrophysiologist well, this, believed in what he was doing. Is that this, this guy says we need more sham did. we need more sham trials. Sham trials. Because yes, we can cure the rhythm with electricity sometimes. But are we really making people better by doing this? And we and if, imagine if we did some sham procedure and everybody felt better, and their their heart rhythm was the same. It's it's kind of the same idea that we'll get into when we talk about back injuries and felt um, better is not usually my endpoint for figuring out if things mm. work. It's desirable, but it's I'm actually trying to treat causes usually. The the point being that I, I think that the three of us would agree that science is good, and we can't just assume that because we think something is good and that we have some evidence like like. The fact that sometimes we do actually can cure the heart rhythm, 
but that is the, the final answer. This requires studies, and this is this is something that, again, for those of you guys that are, that are listening, a lot of procedures and medical devices are never tested, or they're tested badly, and they're never tested against a real, you know, placebo. And they're often tested by people arm. selling them. Yeah, exactly. So I sat in on a grant proposal where they were they were looking at some new um, artificial joint fluid they were going to squirt into someone's knee and they were going to look and see if they got better over time mm -hmm. but there was no there was no uh, real control they were going to look at people right. before the procedure and after the procedure just like these guys in atrial fibrillation and but really i was thinking to myself when i was listening in there needs to be a sham condition yeah how somebody do you... needs to stick the needle in and inject nothing right and then how do you know yeah. it's not just the, the placebo effect because if you trust your orthopedist and they say we have this great thing yeah. it's an artificial joint fluid it's going to make your knee work better and if you believe it there's a good chance it's going to work yeah pma just said we need an angie's list for medical equipment we do it's kind of what, yeah. what we're getting yeah. at yeah. in a way well, or medical it's, procedures, it's shocking to perhaps. me that it's not, those, those kinds of things are very rarely studied. Yeah. When Obamacare was mm -hmm. being debated mm -hmm. the first time, right. uh, one not of the, the issues you know, was, second, third, fourth, sixth, is cost seventh? efficacy a <laughs> reasonable way to allocate the dollars? You know, a lot of people were saying, well, you need to be sure you include acupuncture. You need to be sure you include homeopathy. It sounds like you rationing. You need to be sure you include chiropractic. Mm -hmm. a, on what basis would you decide what to include, what not to? That list can get pretty endless pretty fast. And one of the options on the table would have been cost efficacy. Let's measure how much benefit there is versus how many dollars we put mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, the whole idea that you know we're American, we have to reinvent the wheel is kind of stupid. All over the world, where there's um, single payer healthcare, right? They do cost efficacy testing. There's a lot of it there already, and many of it by countries culturally very similar to ours, Australia, Canada, and England spring to mind. Mm -hmm. And so um, there is a lot of this information and we're leaving it on the table. The people against Obamacare were like, oh, well, that's terrible, that's rationing. Well, yeah, but if we don't do anything, we ration by money. The wealthy get care and the poor mm -hmm. don't, but at least the wealthy sometimes test expensive bullshit treatments and sort of prove them out for the rest of us, sure. like Michael Landon fighting his pancreatic cancer. He's not the only one. Or Steve Jobs yeah. and his pancreatic cancer. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> Let's move on from AFib. All right. So, so this is just <laughs> one example of something that usually might work, but in this case didn't, but the patient still felt a lot better. And this so. would be a clue that maybe we should actually study other outcomes yes. besides just the change in the EKG about doing a procedure on somebody and seeing if it made them feel better. Right. Not so crazy. Yes, we're, we're only advocating for more research. Always. That's, yeah, always. Room for more research. How about right. this one? So Falling we see people, a so guy falls off a bike and uh, comes to the ER. We shoot a bunch of x-rays and uh, I think on the next slide we have a picture of his back. Oops, there we go. And we see these um, areas where the bones actually look compressed. This is so obviously an illustration of the It's an illustration. Uh, of the but we see, we've seen this. I've seen this. Not all that uncommon that we see these kind of an actual broken back. Where is this supposed to be in his back? This would be probably. Oh, I should know. Well, I'm wondering yeah, because I can ribs. tell. It's a lumbar spine. So, all right, but it could I'll, be anywhere. You I'll can get, give you it can, lumbar. You can I'm get just, a compression I'm trying fracture. to evaluate how how uh, anatomically accurate this. All right, so if we have is. any radiologists <laughs> just looking in, they can probably correct us. <laughs> It does look more. It, it look this look yeah. this particular one. Please take your looks children more out of like the room. L1. This is an anatomically accurate I'd say this is like L one, L two, L three, L four. This is yeah. We'll go. We'll go with that. That sounds. That sounds about right. So, so the got, one thing have, I can contribute this this uh, yeah. podcast. So. And this is a pretty easy thing to be able to explain to people. You know, you got your. I'll, I'll have make a fist and say that's your vertebra. They kind of they're on top of each other. And every so often, when you if you have osteoporosis or a fracture, and the bones can break after an injury, the 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 bone just collapses, and that's what we see here. And some people get disabling pain after this. Really I mean, bad. It looks yeah. awful, certainly. Yeah, so the next slide yes. shows Oops. the procedure that people can undergo, which is this cement vertebroplasty. And the guy wow. whose study we're going to talk about, he invented this procedure, or so he says, and it involves sticking a needle into the broken vertebra, the broken back, squirting in some cement. It actually expands the bone and stabilizes it. So the bone isn't kind of, the broken bone isn't moving around. Mm -hmm. And it relieves pressure on nerves and makes everything better. All right, 
So it sounds fantastic. And so I found this statistic that 14,000 patients received uh, this procedure in 2015. That was the most recent I was able to find. A lot. But yeah, tons and tons of people. Really super common thing. So this is actual cement? It's a... Cement-like... It's basically insulation wall foam, but the medical is Mm -hmm. sterile grade. Ah, okay. So it's it's at least somewhat pliable, I'm guessing? I don't know. No, it expands in place and then solidifies this version of it and becomes um, Mm -hmm. basically replacement bone. Right. And it makes perfect sense. If your pain is caused by the deformation of the bone, and we can re-expand it back into its normal shape and straighten everything up again, you should improve. The the biologic plausibility of this Mm -hmm. one struck me as good. And I really wanted this to work because there's so many people who have so much back pain. Yeah. I'm just wondering, because of the way bones heal, if maybe this particular material serves the proper function of of providing kind of a scaffolding for the bone to regrow around, which it seems plausible, but perhaps there is a potentially better substance to do that? Maybe. And I I imagine there, there are some people that are studying that. Yeah. I mean, I'm Probably. just wondering because the the bone will heal in place, right? If it, yeah. if it doesn't get expanded, it's going to try and heal whatever compression fractures there are on that vertebral body. And if, that, if it doesn't get expanded, it will heal that way, and that probably will be quite painful, potentially. So anything that might yeah. put it back into the right place could potentially make the healing process a little bit easier, but... I wonder if this is the best iteration of that. Right. That's all I'm asking. So I don't know. <laughs> but I, I think either. that the fact that we can see this, actually with an x-ray, that we can imagine this, we can, we can see these images, and we're all pretty, pretty well convinced that this is going to work, right? It just makes perfect sense. Sure. But I think on the other hand, when we show people their collapsed verte- vertebrae, we're also telling them that they are broken. Right. And we're telling people that they have this structural problem that, yeah, we have a way to fix it, but if they don't fix it, they're going to be in permanent disabling pain. And for some people, that's actually going to cause pain. I think that's one of the take-home messages that I want people to take, is that with, you know, with our you know, biological, plausible you know, pathway for disease and how we fix things, we can actually make people suffer. Yeah, an undervalued part of the discussion about placebo, mm-hmm. in fact, is that it can work in both directions. Works, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So we, right. it, it really highlights the role of the brain both in controlling pain and also just what we think about uh, pain and disease. Apparently they started this back in 2005 with a set cement that they would put oh, in, nice. but now they have various cements depending on what is needed. So they, they probably have different kinds. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So and that's kind of getting at the, my, my and question. And interestingly, there was a guy here in New Mexico who injected an acrylic. Remember oh. this? I think he's in jail. That sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> well, at any rate, in other places in the world, yeah. where people were injecting something they called stem cells. No idea what it yeah. was, but there were some bad outcomes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it has a real potential for harm. Let's check out the next thing. Okay. So this guy, David Kalmus, who did a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So he was the inventor of this procedure. He went around to different hospitals lecturing on it. He showed people how to do it. He's an interventional radiologist by training, so he makes a lot of money. But those are, these are some of the best paid physicians, in, at least in North America. Sure. And, but he noticed a couple of things when he was talking about this, is that he couldn't tell people what is the ideal amount of cement to inject, because sometimes people would have a great deal of relief with just injecting a little bit, and sometimes people would have a lot of relief if they injected a lot. But he also noticed that sometimes people would inject the cement in the wrong place. Not even the broken bone. Ah, interesting. And okay. they would, they would, you know, after after the yeah. procedure, they would spring up. They feel, doc, I feel great, just like that initial slide. That sounds I like I got a my sham life trial. back. <laughs> I'm swimming. I'm carrying groceries. I'm doing all the things I used to do. Thank you so much. And the doc would be like, well, Oops. I think I uh, <laughs> didn't actually put it in the right place. Ooh. So that made him want to do this trial. Hmm. And the the trial he did um, was he did a, a sham procedure. So he fooled people, we'll say quote-unquote fooled people. Everybody enrolled in the trial knew that they had the potential right. to get the real cement or to get a procedure in which they didn't get cement. And so what they did was they brought people into the operating room. They would open up the envelope. Even the doctors doing the procedure wouldn't know if they were doing the actual thing or not. Um, either way, they would open up the, the cement jar and make the smell of the cement. Apparently it's got a very oh, wow. typical smell. Interesting. And if, it was, if they were in the, in the sham group, they would 
poke a little hole in the skin, but they wouldn't actually inject the cement. But they would tell patients, I mean, you're going to feel me injecting the cement now. So they are actually awake and alert during this process. They, they receive some sedation, but they're, okay. they're not unconscious. It's not a general gotcha. anesthesia. Probably, probably local anesthesia. Yeah. And so David Kalmus relates this example of one of his colleagues who was absolutely convinced that the procedure worked. And he opens up the envelope. He sees that it's the placebo. He's all bummed out. He actually looks at David Kalmus, injects the placebo. And then it was, and after that, the guy felt better. And he was like, what, wait, maybe there's something to this. Maybe there's, maybe the, the cement doesn't actually matter. Right. So well, wow. I, I would say those are not, that's not all the possibilities. Sure. One okay. is the cement helps, but so does the placebo effect. So yeah. some people who didn't get cement still benefited from placebo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another is the cement makes no difference at all except by cultivating belief in the practitioner right. and the patient. And um, did you have sufficient numbers to answer between those two possibilities? There should be. Yeah. But I want yeah, to make the point here that, that very, it's very rare that we actually do these sham procedures. I mean, ethics boards don't serious? like them. And a lot of times nobody, um, they, don't, they don't feel the need to do it. If they feel like it's like, why would I need a test if, jump, if wearing a parachute is going to help me you know, survive jumping out of a plane? I just know it's going to work. And that is what people a lot of times think when they, with a procedure like this. Right. Well, um, one of my old mentors, Doug Lindsay, mm -hmm. uh, was trying to test rattlesnake antivenom back when I was, mm. this was actually Ooh, a little before I went to medical school. And it had never had a, a, a randomized controlled trial. Uh -huh. So he wanted to do that. It was long overdue, he felt. And he could not get anyone anywhere to let him do it uh, because there's been so much experience with it right. that it was felt that it would that you just couldn't justify it. Mm -hmm. And I will say, having uh, have you worked with rattlesnake venom? You probably have anti-venom, I should say, yeah. a few times. You can actually see it working. So I can see why people would feel compelled and convinced but it, it's kind of bothersome that a medicine with as many side effects, this was still back in the days of horse serum. Mm -hmm. um, there were and a it, lot of side effects. And it can, it can kill this. you, and it, it does occasionally kill people. Oh, and well. it's never had a randomized controlled trial. Is it, it still an allergic reaction thing? Yeah, okay. anaphylaxis. Yeah. Or, or serum sickness, there's other ways that it can okay. be really hurtful, harmful to you. Sure. In yeah. fact, when you get a good outcome, they still come back a week later looking like they have anaphylaxis practically. Yeah. Yikes. You know, they yeah. really look bad a week later. Mm -hmm. Right. Nevertheless, I'd ask for it. If right. I got bitten by a rattlesnake, based on my experiences treating patients and so forth, and by the way, I grew up around rattlesnakes. They mm -hmm. were like squirrels to me. Oh, wow. You know, um, I would definitely want this treatment. Mm -hmm. right. And I probably would hesitate a little bit if you offered me a contract that said, we won't charge you, but you might get placebo. <laughs> I'd probably yeah. flinch. Yeah. You know? so, like so, if you're actually in a potentially life-threatening situation where you've just had a rattlesnake bite. Odds of dying are not high, but losing tissue, fingers, hands, yeah. things like that. So yeah. if you did want to test it with a randomized trial, you'd want to do it on the most more minor cases. Yeah. More minor cases. And yeah. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. I'm pointing out, though, that once a it's thing is well-established yeah. uh, and becomes yeah. standard of care, then right. going back and trying to get the RCT you needed in the first mm -hmm. place can be really tricky. Yeah. But in this trial, they actually gave people the option. They said, well, if it doesn't work, well, no matter which, which arm you're in, they're not going to tell the patients what in their arm. If they're dissatisfied, they can go back and get the other procedure. Oh, interesting. So they gave them, it was a crossover design. We have a really great question here oh, from Lady Scientist. How's it going? Uh, welcome. Do you mm -hmm. think there's a potential to change out using cement for human IPSC-derived osteoblasts? Yeah, I wondered about that myself. Yeah. I mean, that, that was kind mm -hmm. of what I was getting at in that essentially the, the whole purpose of putting it in is to facilitate the, the natural healing process potentially. So if you're adding some more osteoblasts that, that can start rebuilding. Ground up bone matrices are used for other okay. kinds of repair right. procedures oh, okay. and yeah, reforming I was procedures. As a matter of fact, I th my neighbor actually under, underwent that procedure. Ah. With a, with, he had a, an autologous bone graft. Yeah. I think they took it out of his hip. And put it into his neck, but yeah, maybe we could do something like like, like what Lady Scientist is yeah. recommending. Good idea. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's see. Does our understanding of evolution influence our understanding of vertebroplasty? I think this is like ultimately the question All we're right. going to try. So you want to get some today. evolution here? Yeah. Yeah, so we this do, was my, my so main question I wanted to answer today. And there's a we could go all kinds of different directions with this. So one is that. You know, just we've evolved to be bipedal, so we're upright. Does that put some additional stress on our back? 
A lot of people think that that this is a design flaw that we've not evolved to、right. cope with our upright posture, and that has left us vulnerable to getting a lot of、uh, you know back problems, including、um, compression. Osteoporosis is its, is its own kind of、mm-hmm. animal.、Um, it's thought that people living in traditional hunter-gatherer societies don't. They have very hard bones, and they、uh, live a life of a lot of physical activity,、right. and so we don't see the osteoporosis that we see、um, in a modern society. So this is a, that's a problem of mismatch that we're、right. that our our bones and our genes are mismatched for our modern environment. So that leaves us vulnerable to these kinds of things. But I think that the point that I wanted to get to with this with this、uh, discussion is that pain's a crazy thing. It's a weird animal, and the brain can invent pain, and the brain can take it away, and The sick role is something which it seems like it has evolved, and maybe even the doctor role has evolved mm, in in human societies,、thought. and that we derive some benefit from this usually, at least. And and every society has someone who has this caretaker health role, and it's it's worth exploring what that's all about.、Sure. I don't actually have an answer. I just think it's a really interesting thing that is underappreciated. Well, here's an interesting sort of light on that.、Mm-hmm. Um, A friend of ours just took in a a chihuahua that had been hit by a car hard enough to break、oh. it open. Its guts were、oh、on the outside. Oh my gosh! Oh.、Uh, took it to a vet. It was not her dog or anything. She she、yeah. the dog was left by the road. Oh. She took oh, it to the、God. vet. They did major surgery on the poor critter and so on. And、uh, yesterday,、uh, it wagged its tail for the first time, and it was、oh, wow. very friendly at, and、mm-hmm. and responding positively to strangers and so forth. Right. And the accident happened less than a week ago. Dang.、Um, on the other hand, I have a rescue dog, also rescued about three weeks ago. Oh wow! And oh. just leaving him outside is enough to get him on the back door, letting the whole neighborhood know what a brutal owner I am because he has to be outside for fifteen <laughs> minutes. You know. Yeah. And so the the variability of these responses、right. looks adaptive to me. My dog knows that if he embarrasses、mm-hmm. me enough, I'll let him in. Right. Oh yeah. The other dog knows that. The worst is over. The crisis is resolved, and he seems、right. to be in a nurturing environment now,、mm-hmm. and he's responding he wants to very positively.、That. Although、yeah. clearly, his physical distress has to be、yeah. greater than the、right. than my dog. <laughs> that's that's a pretty、course. good idea. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that a lot of this has to do with the evolution of sociality. That we、yeah. are so we are a social、uh, animal. Dogs are too, and and well, wolves are social, and dogs are a special case that we've they've evolved. Co-evolved, co-evolved to pay attention to our cues, and really, my I can just I can speak for my my dogs <laughs> that、yeah. she manipulates us. Oh, totally, all the time, all the time, <laughs> in terms of being、yeah. fed and getting attention and a variety of things. Oh yeah. So the notion so, that my dogs are my alarm clock.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> we manipulate each other's by how we present, by our right. Right. by our、uh, affect、mm-hmm. and our expectations. Right. For us. That makes a lot of sense as social animals, and I、mm-hmm. would distinguish that from, say, school animals like fish or herd animals like、uh, some kinds of ungulates.、Mm-hmm. Uh, social animals depend heavily on each other for cues, emotional support, things like that.、Right. And so, in that sense, the mind-body connection thing begins、mm-hmm. to come into focus for me as something that、uh, may be a special evolutionary attribute of social. You, you could speculate might be.、Uh, Evolutionary attribute of social creatures. In that case, well, though, I think, I'd be surprised to see placebo behavior in fish, although they are more complex than ants. But they may be less social. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Good point. How about this question? I、mm-hmm. think this is a good one to fuel further discussion. Would we consider behavior part of evolution? I well, would say. I think so. Absolutely. What do you think, Harvey?、Um, but yeah, what do you guys think?、Uh, I wouldn't have thought of it as a question. Yes, absolutely,、yeah. it is.、Yeah. Stephen Pinker's book, The Blank Slate, looks into this quite、mm-hmm. a bit.、Mm-hmm. It was actually believed for a while、uh, that we're born literally a blank slate, and everything is written onto us by experience and so forth. And there are、the、those nature, that advocate for that now. Nurture discussion, which is a form of determinism, really,、right. yeah. has been raging all my life. But the weight of evidence is moving more and more toward nurture. That is, our genetics make a big difference. Uh, Martin Seligman,、uh, former president of the APA, American、mm-hmm. Psychiatric Association, and、mm-hmm. sort of the, if not the founder, at least the face of、uh, positive psychology,、uh, believes that we are born with a sort of genetic range of affect、right. 
that we uh, can have, barring mm -hmm. extraordinary circumstances, and will elastically come back within that range. But we can nudge ourselves to the upper edge of sure. that range. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that certain breeds of dogs behave very differently uh, than other breeds. The overlap is huge, though. It's important to remember that the variation within a group is often bigger than the variations between yeah, them. But there are certainly and statistical differences in behavior. And there's also in variation breeds of horse and dog. There's variation in you depending on what you were doing today. Sure. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, yeah. Whether moment you're engaged in a social interaction Absolutely. or not. And you could have the sick role on one day and then the not, not sick role on another day. And so that variability, I think that the capacity to engage in these different kind of context-dependent behaviors mm -hmm. is also an evolved trait. Absolutely. And I think that, I mean, we see similar things, you know, in ants, for instance, which we'll eventually get to. Um, <laughs> so that, that suggests that this really is an evolutionary phenomenon, ants and uncles. True. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really important point to make because <clears throat> the, the whole nature-nurture debate seems mm -hmm. like something that is in the public consciousness. We sure hear is. about it all the time for decades. Well, even with sex and gender, but I don't want to go Yeah, there. right. But like the, I think the, the nature or nurture question is sort of erroneous in general because it's probably both. I think everybody evidence, agrees it yeah, is. It's more like, or less how to weight them is what right, people are haggling over. Absolutely, sure. And, and what you were mentioning, right. that's kind of my whole sort of research paradigm is it, it operates on the assumption that there is some inherent variability of your underlying genetics and you have this range going in mm -hmm. and then based on minute to minute inputs from your environmental experiences that's going to shift where you end up growing or what behaviors you end up having over time and it's sort of this this is marco stuff the black mm -hmm. the, i call it the kind of black box of of your experiences where every single input you're getting is shifting your little box over and over and over until you're you end up in this particular trajectory and that's mm -hmm. i think that that allows for both nature and nurture another way yeah. to say it is that there's some interaction between yes. predisposition absolutely and responses to experience yes uh, but I think the original question was, is there any predisposition at all? Right. Are we born with any templates sure. for behaviors? Or was... Yes, we are. Are they... <laughs> behavior evolved. Right. Yeah. Yes. Which I yeah. think is the same question. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, mm -hmm. the most, the simplest answer to is behavior something that can evolve is that if behavior is something that can influence your reproductive fitness, then yes. But and, people often assume mm -hmm. that if we, if we stipulate that we are born with some instincts or some templates or that behaviors evolved or that we have some predispositions, I'm saying the same thing in a bunch of different ways. Right. What people often hear is, well, then there's nothing I can do about it. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Right. I am born with a behavior that says if I'm hungry, I'll grab food and put it in my mouth. Mm -hmm. But as a well-behaved, civilized person, if you're not looking, I might. But if you're looking, at least I'll leave your food alone while I'm here in your house. You know, yeah. I can, can override that behavior. <laughs> right. That's yes. the point of civilization. Right. Okay. And yeah. By the way, slight tangent. <laughs> have you ever noticed the people who believe in social Darwinism mm. hate Darwinism? What's yeah. that all about? Anyway, back to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just just on that, on that point, apparently there's some evidence that uh, when mothers are asked, you know, how much of your baby's behavior do you think is genetic or right. is because of your, you know, behavioral input in the, in the environment that the baby's grown in, grown up in. Apparently mothers, the first child, mom tends to overweight uh, environmental mm -hmm. inputs. And by the fifth child, she'll say that it's, oh, it's all me. Uh, it's all, it's all <laughs> genetics. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, <laughs> yeah. And this is interesting. In a, a study I've read about, mm -hmm. and I've seen the videos that this mm -hmm. study is based on as well, mm -hmm. They took these little babies, babies that are just crawling, they, they can't walk yet, and they had them go through a baby obstacle course, so the ramps they had to go up, little things they had to go over, you know, pillow walls and stuff. <laughs> I'm picturing this. And I'm like, I want that as a You adult. know, when you look at a baby with a <laughs> diaper on, you can't tell if it's a boy or a girl, right? Sure. Right. So the observers were asked, you know, is this baby in, enjoying the play? Are they struggling with mm. an obstacle? Things like mm. this. There were a bunch of questions right. evaluating what the baby's experience was as they were doing this. Right. And if they were told the baby was a boy, it's the same obstacle course and everything, they would rate the baby as uh, dynamically tackling challenges and things like that. Mm -hmm. And if they were told the baby was a girl, they would see the baby as struggling and they wanted to go over and help it. If it was yep. a boy, they wanted to stand back and let it work it out. But if it was a girl, they wanted to go over and help it. And what the uh, study was 
supposedly illustrating, and I think it gets at, mm -hmm. is the difficulty of separating out the cultural versus the biological because it's the same parents looking at the same babies. Absolutely. And all you have to do is just randomize which gender you tell them it is and yep. you get completely different responses. Totally to this, literally yeah. the same videos. They weren't watching a right. room full of babies, they are watching no, the videos, so they also have the same video. Oh, the same video, that's great. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, this is really interesting. I've yeah. had this kind of conversation yeah. a lot recently, and let, mm -hmm. let's not get into the... We can really get into the weeds. All of that, but, but I do want to <laughs> say that that is a very important point to make because mm -hmm. I think it's easy for people to assume that maybe those cultural differences that in the way we treat uh, kids or encourage or discourage certain things based on gender can happen only later on but it but this is a great example of how it can happen immediately and that's and it's yeah. not has nothing to do with the kid themselves it's it's the parents that are doing that or just peers so I do think we're born with software but I don't think it's a trump card yes I agree with that yeah and all, sure. all behavior all traits whether they are behavioral or not are a combination so we can I think we can hang our hat on that. Yeah, let's let's sure. check out the, yes. the next okay. question, or we can go to the next slide. Let's see. Let me see what we've got here. Um, Thank you guys for sending questions in. This is yeah, really yeah. makes it a much better conversation. Yeah, yeah. It makes it great. Yeah. Let's see. People are pretty psyched about the baby obstacle course. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Perhaps the baby ob obstacle see the fire course pit. might increase <laughs> reproductive fitness. Oh, that's great. Mm. All right. Let's get back to our our slides here. Um, okay. So, next, another example. So, the kind of archetypical uh, sham surgery trial that was, that was done was done in the 1950s, and this was looking at mammary artery ligation. So, this is the first Can example we break that, that I'm, down I'm aware of. Yeah, so I'll procedure. tell you what it is. Yeah. So, back in the 1950s, people didn't get angioplasty. They didn't get little stents put in their, heart, their cardiac arteries, which is a whole other topic that we can get into. Sure. Because it doesn't work as well as we might think. But... Um, it was thought that if you could just make more blood go to the heart that was kind of starving for oxygen, if there was a like a like an atherosclerotic plaque somewhere in the mm -hmm. heart, you could fix that by diverting more blood flow. So what they did was they did a they took the mammary artery, which as you might expect would go goes to the, the chest, the, the chest wall, or the mammary gland. You can divert it and make it go to the heart, and people would say, "Doc, I feel better after the procedure. My heart's getting more oxygen. I feel great. I'm back to golf. I'm back to doing all the things I like to do." And then someone thought, well, you know what? Maybe this doesn't work as well as we think that it works, and so we're going to do a sham procedure. So this is one. The, the, the investigator was the, uh, Dr. Cobb, and he randomized 17 people either to a the mammary artery uh, ligation procedure, which diverted blood flow, and some to placebo. And it Relatively turns out, small sample size. Yeah, small. Just so they made the little skin incisions. Patients didn't know which one they got. And if you go to the next slide, it shows that you know, the the bars in terms of pain relief and um, their how much nitroglycerin they had to use after the procedure, they were about the same. So there was no difference between um, the two groups overall. And the nitroglycerin in this, in this situation is doing what? So nitroglycerin makes the blood vessels expand and delivers, again, the idea is it delivers more blood and oxygen to the starving heart tissue. And so people do take nitroglycerin to relieve pain from angina, and angina is uh, pain that people get when they have coronary atherosclerosis. It Is just, it, it just angina means... or angina? I've heard both. <laughs> angina? Or... You know, in <laughs> people were on sides almost to the point of a knockdown. I know, I imagine. Over yeah. umbilicus or umbilicus. Oh, it was I would like this big. You were totally on one team or the other. On it's like Gulliver's Travels. Yeah. They yeah. crack the egg at the big end to the small end, right? Or apoptosis or. Apoptosis? Apoptosis. Apoptosis. Oh, like <laughs> silent that's how, that's how it actually is. Oh, apoptosis? Really? Yeah. I mean, I guess getting, it makes sense. We're getting sense, really nerdy here, guys. Tea, but, hey, <laughs> so this is nothing new for this channel. Pterodactyl. <laughs> yeah, right? Apopterodactyl. Apopterodactyl. Yeah. Um, Thanks yeah. for being there. He was... Yeah. He did. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. <laughs> uh, let's see. We have a high-level question. All right, here we go. Finally, we needed one of those. <laughs> I know, right? Like none of them were before mm -hmm. now. Um, is there a relationship between evolutionary medicine and the placebo effect? Or is the former just the name of a series of which the latter is a part? Ooh. Interesting. I like... <laughs> so, but those, those aren't actually... There's no distinction between those two things. 
right? So there is a relationship. Right. The, the relationship the, could the be former, that one subsumes yeah. the other or not. Yeah. I see what you're saying. That They're not okay. mutually exclusive. Yeah. So let's turn it, let's change it a bit. Yeah, yeah. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit more explicitly about why we're talking about placebo effects on an evolutionary medicine podcast? I think that's really what it comes down right. to, for sure. So let me lay, <laughs> let, let me lay, out, lay it out to you. So I, I have recorded you know, podcasts, and of course I've talked to you, Kate and, right. and you, coffee. They're, they're never in the same place at the exact same Not time. Not until today. Makes in this fact, until now, people so suspect we were the same person. That's right. We were never seen <laughs> in the same room. It's basically the Fight right. Club. <laughs> and so one of, one of my preoccupations and one of the take-home messages from, from evolutionary medicine in my own practice is that less is more. So this is talking about how a lot of what we observe in humans in, in the hospital are are things that have evolved. So fever is a great example. So if fever has evolved, then we shouldn't be so excited about treating it with Tylenol. If um, a fast heart rate under certain circumstances is an evolved trait for disease, we shouldn't always be trying to reduce the heart rate. There's lots of examples like this. And the bottom line is that we are a little bit overzealous in trying to over-treat, over-diagnose, and do a lot of things for which there isn't great evidence. And if we had more of an evolutionary hat on, we could say, well, you know what? Maybe that's all okay. Maybe right. some of these things are evolved traits and we shouldn't interfere with them. So in, under that circumstance, I think that knowledge of the placebo effect kind of goes in the same direction as this. That they, it kind of fits in this whole idea that we have an epidemic of overtreatment and overdiagnosis and we need to be more aware of some of the underlying biological principles. And like I said, I don't have a perfect way to, put, to pull the whole thing together. I just think this is a super fascinating thing. And like I, I'm drawn to ideas that don't get kind of the prime time yeah, and, right. and are a little bit yeah. you know, subversive. Like sure. evolution is a little bit subversive and I like that. Yeah, and this kind of thing, it, yeah. it, it makes for a really interesting thought experiment. Too. Exactly. Yeah. So I'd have said that um, slightly differently. Mm -hmm. That's why uh, you're here. I, yeah. I wouldn't say that um, because fever occurs in conjunction with illness, I would, that wouldn't lead me to assume it's an evolved adaptive trait it would just make that a credible hypothesis. Sure. But sure. in a complex yeah. system, I don't trust deductive logic. Complex systems fail us, confuse us all the time, and we test and we don't get the result we thought we'd get. For example, I've always been a big fan of treating cardiac pain with nitroglycerin because it dilates the vessel, improves the circulation, treats the root problem. I'm fixing something. I feel but better it could about be, it that. It could be a great placebo effect. Well, it could be, or whatever else it is, as far as I can tell, there's no compelling evidence that you actually change outcomes with nitroglycerin, despite the fact that it makes lots of sense to me. Sure. Um, so I don't assume that everything our bodies do when they're ill is an evolved adaptive response. Some of it I would see as limitations of adaptation or maladaptations or adaptations that make sense in a different evolutionary context than the one we live in now. Remember, we don't live in the world we evolved in. And for all those reasons, I would say they're hypothesis generators, but they don't give us answers until we do outcome-based trials. And I would agree with everything that you said, except that I think that the evidence overall points to us underappreciating this idea of adaptation in medicine. I, we, I'd we, buy that. We don't yeah. spend enough time thinking about it. Yeah. And that's what motivates me. Yeah, for sure.